Yeah, I was trying to not get in Shades Creek that morning. <laughs> it looked a little cold. I'm a little uh, brokenhearted this morning because I put in a request for my favorite Christmas hymn, and it didn't come up today. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. If you know it, you just sing along with me. Ready? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. That's right. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glowed. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer game. Now, what in the world is wrong with those reindeer? Come on, reindeer. Making life hard on somebody like that. Can you remember, let's just all embrace the awkward here for a moment, put ourselves in Rudolph's hooves. Do you remember that time in your life when you came to the realization that there was something different about you compared to the people around you? There was something different maybe about you from your family or different from you about your classmates. Or maybe you didn't even know there was anything different until that little creep pointed it out right? And then just magnified it for everybody to see. And then would just use that as a weapon to sort of bludgeon your heart and mind for the rest of your life. That sounds like I'm speaking out of experience. Perhaps I am, right? It's crazy to me how cruel reindeer and children can be, apparently. What's really sad, though, is a lot of times those children don't grow out of it. They just become cruel, cold-hearted adults who seem to look for differences in other people so that they can draw lines and distinctions and boundaries. These people find some kind of weird, sick joy in causing other people to feel unwelcomed or unwanted. Now, I feel really sorry for grown folks like that because I think I know what's going on. I think it's just their juvenile sort of way of trying to conceal and cover up what makes them different that they don't want people to know about. They are hoping none of that gets magnified before somebody else. Let me ask you, why are we so afraid of different? What is it about different that kind of makes us a little uneasy. You know, we set up systems, we, we start movements, we, we build organizations, and, and then we kind of encircle them and we guard them against anything that's different. We, we like what we do. We like how we do it. We like the people that we do those things with. And, and, and then, because we're opposed to what's different, oftentimes those organizations or those businesses and even churches, they don't sustain they don't last because they're closed off to anything different. 2,000 years ago was no different. The world was a mess then as it is now, and they did not want anything different. But one night in Bethlehem, a seven-pound, seven-ounce package of different was born into this world and laid in a manger I don't know if he was seven pounds, seven ounces, but I'm betting he was, all right? And man, the world is a different place because of what happened there in that manger. And, and a man named Matthew, 
A few years later, decades later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat down to write down some of that story in hopes that maybe other people one day would be different also. So Matthew wrote a book that's in our Bible called The Gospel According to Matthew. And if you have a Bible today, go ahead and turn there. I have not preached since the month of October. I've been on a little break, so I hope you brought a lunch today because we're going to make up for some lost time. I'm just kidding, sort of. Here's the thing about that book you're turning to, though. Even the book itself is different. Matthew's book is different from every other book in the Bible in a number of ways. Here's one way. Matthew's book is different because it's a bridge. It builds a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, if you just went from the Old Testament to to Mark or to Romans or to Ephesians or to Revelation, it wouldn't make any sense. But Matthew is that bridge in between. Matthew's book is also different in this way. It's the historic record of a man by the name of Adam. But Matthew's is not about that man. Matthew makes his focus very clear. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at it together. He says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's about Jesus. And even by how Matthew writes this genealogy, he's sending a message. This is different from the genealogies that you've read in the Old Testament. The Old Testament genealogies read sort of like this. And then he died. And then he had a son. And then he died. And he had a son. And then he died. And then he had a son. And then he died. But this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 isn't like that. It sounds like this. And then he fathered this one, and he fathered this one, and he fathered this one. You see, when you walk through the genealogies in the Old Testament, it feels like you're milling around a cemetery, right? Looking for who's dead and when they died. But when you read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, it's more like sitting in the records office at a hospital flipping through birth certificates. Then they were born, then they were born, and then they were born. And that's one of the ways that the book of Matthew's different from everything in the Old Testament. The Old Testament kind of feels and sounds like a funeral, but the New Testament is about life and birth, and not just physical birth, but new birth, spiritual birth, and even resurrection. And Matthew is writing because he wants you to see different has come. He wants you to know just how different all of this is, and his story is different from all the books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all about the promises that God was making, but Matthew's writing his book to tell you about all the promises that God has kept and is keeping. And a major point of difference in Matthew's book is that he's telling us that Jesus has come to form a new people, a different people than the world has ever known before. In fact, of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is the only one, Matthew is the only one that explicitly names this new and different group of people. Do you know who they are? The church. That's me and you. Matthew draws attention to them. The Old Testament featured one people group, primarily the Jewish people. But the New Testament, beginning with Matthew, is going to focus on a new and a different people called the church. That's us. And Matthew writes this book 
about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended back into heaven. And when Matthew's writing this 30 years later, he is already seeing this different group of people called the church emerging. They're coming to fruition. He is walking with them, living among them. And what he is seeing is, hey, God is doing something different because this new group of people, they are different because they're not made up only of Jews. They're made up of non-Jews, a.k.a. Gentiles. And Matthew will write this book with the hopes that his own people, the Jewish people, will read it and go, yes, that's the king of the Jews. That's the long-awaited Messiah. But he's dropping clues over and over and over again throughout his book to show the Jewish people that God's doing something new. God's doing something different that's not built on external distinctions like race or socioeconomics or ethnicity. In fact, tradition tells us that Matthew eventually traveled to places to share the gospel like Iran and Africa, and Syria, and Greece. You know, it's kind of funny when I hear people call Christianity the white man's religion. Listen, Matthew wasn't a white dude, and there's no record anywhere that he ministered to white people. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. And listen, you would be wise as we walk through the book of Matthew together. Pay attention as we go through that, and take note every time Matthew, this Jewish man, points out how God was bringing non-Jewish people into his kingdom how they were playing a role in what God was doing. He's anticipating that his Jewish readers will read this and the light bulbs will go off and they will know our Jesus, our Messiah has come to do something different. He's building a family. He's building a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Here's what Matthew's doing, Miss Jan. He is serving up a big heaping plate of different. So that's where we're going to be for a while in Matthew looking at the difference that Jesus brings into this world. But if you ask Matthew, he would tell you the biggest difference that he saw is the difference that Jesus made in his own life. Do you know what Matthew was doing when Jesus got to him? He was collecting taxes. Here's a Jewish guy fleecing his own people for the empire of Rome. And to his Jewish brothers and sisters, that was an act of blasphemy against their God. It was an act of treason against their own people. A Jewish tax collector like Matthew was, was considered to be the worst of the worst. But Jesus comes to Matthew and he invited him to walk away from all that, to leave it all behind. And Matthew did. And Jesus gave Matthew a different name. His name was Levi. Jesus gave him a different name. He named him Matthew. But more importantly, Jesus gave Matthew a different life. Matthew left behind power. He left behind riches to follow Jesus. But most importantly, he made Matthew different. His life changed. His heart changed. He loosened his grip on the stuff and the money and the possessions. He became hospitable and generous. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us that he opened his home up to a whole bunch of people who were also, like him, very different. Luke tells us that story. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. 
So leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. And now there was a large crowd of tax collectors. This is different kind of people, the worst of the worst really in society. A large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, this rabbi, Jesus, he's a different kind of rabbi. And the disciples that he has, they're different sort of rabbis. And they're doing different sort of things. The people he socializes with, they're different kind of people. And religious crowds, they couldn't tolerate different 2,000 years later, I'm not so sure that much has changed. But maybe as we walk along with Matthew for a couple of Sundays or a couple of dozen Sundays, maybe, just maybe, God's going to change us. Maybe we'll be different because of how the Lord allows us to encounter this different king through his word in the book of Matthew. I pray that so. So let's break ground today. Matthew chapter one, for just a moment here, I think Matthew wants us to see that this is a different kind of king, a different kind of Messiah. And here's what we're gonna look at today. He's coming from a different sort of family, a different sort of family. He's royalty, right? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but royal bloods, they're kind of picky and peculiar about who gets into the family line. I don't really keep a whole lot with what's going over there in royal world. That's really not my bag. I could not be less interested in it than I am. But I hear a little bit about it, right, from time to time. But Matthew is going to show us there are different kinds of people in Jesus's family. Jesus comes from a different kind of family. He comes for to build a different kind of family. Here it is, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're about to get 14 generations right here. These are 14 generations from Abraham to King David. Brace yourself. Here we go. It's an exciting reading. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Then 14 more generations from King David to where they're taken into Babylonian captivity. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Then 14 more generations from the time they come back from Babylonian captivity until Jesus comes. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Be careful with this one. Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Nathan. Nathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Now I'm sure all of y'all read this part of the Christmas story with your family every Christmas, don't you? Right? No? Y'all are missing out. Let me tell you. Okay, pro tip right here. This Christmas morning, the children, man, they're eager, ready to open, just tearing those presents. But you say, hey, no, 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 listen. Today, we're going to read part of the Christmas story. We're going to read out of Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And then I want you to choose the youngest reader in the household to read it. And then two and a half hours later then, you'll be unwrapping those presents, right? It's going to be an awesome time. Obviously, there are some practical reasons and times and places maybe that reading Matthew chapter 1 is not a great idea. But I want you to know Matthew is laying a foundation in what you might consider a really boring part of the Bible. He is laying a foundation to tell us God is doing something different. God is doing something different in this world. God is coming through a different kind of family. God is building a different kind of family. Now, at a prophetic level, I've preached through this before and talked about how Matthew's showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. But today I want to zero in on just three different kinds of people. I just called their names out. There's many different kinds of people here, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'm going to hone in on three. And the reason I'm honing in on these three is because they happen to be women, which is worth noting, because Jewish genealogies did not include the names of women in the first century. Women weren't even considered to be people. You just need to know Jesus changed all that, ladies. Jesus changed that because he created it to be that way, that women would be recognized for their full value and worth as image bearers of God. But in the first century, man, people didn't see that. And so women weren't, weren't really considered people. They were really considered property. And so their names weren't included in the genealogy. But Matthew, this Jewish guy, a guy that Jesus had made different, he includes the names of these three women that we're going to look at. Matthew's sending a message in the boring part of the Bible. Different is on the way. Different's coming. And to fully grasp just the significance of Matthew putting those women's names in there, just, just understand this. A Jewish man every day would pray a prayer that would sound something like this. Oh God, thank you for not letting me be born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Truth. So for Matthew to include the names of these women that we're about to look at in his genealogy, it's not only strange, it would have been considered scandalous. But Jesus is doing something different. He's a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And let's just pause and say, thank you, Jesus, that you are. Because if these scalawags and this genealogy could get in the kingdom of God, then so can we. So can we. Three different kinds of people that are in the family of God. Let's look at them today. Number one, the forgotten. The people that everybody else forgets, Jesus doesn't. The forgotten are a part of his family. Let's look back to verse 2. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah. They were twins. 
and he fathered them by a lady by the name of Tamar. Now, you probably don't remember, because I've noticed this about y'all, nothing really sticks too well, but back several months ago, I was preaching a sermon series on Joseph, and I unpacked the story of Tamar. I'll unpack it again, because I'm not even going to ask you if you remember that. So Jacob had these 12 sons. Joseph was one of them. One of the brothers was named Judah. So Judah has a son who marries this woman by the name of Tamar. But not long after he marries Tamar, this, this son of Judah's dies. And they had something there that God had put in place called the kinsman redeemer. The next in line in the family then could sort of step into the deceased family member's role, could have children with that widowed lady so that she would not be destitute, so she could have support, so that his brother's name and line and inheritance could continue. And so the kinsman redeemer in that family then, that next brother steps in there and he has the physical commitment to her in that moment, but he manipulates the situation so that she does not conceive and have a child because he selfishly did not want to take that on. And God was grieved and angered at such a sinful and selfish act, and God kills him right there on the spot. Now, the only brother that's remaining is too young. And so Judah tells Tamar, listen, my next son, he's too young to get married, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go home, and you're going to live with your folks and your family, and when he gets old enough, I'll send him to y'all, and then you'll have children, you'll have a future, and you'll still have an inheritance coming into your life. And so she does that. But meanwhile, I think Judah tries to forget about her. He, he just moves on and, 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 and wants to just keep her out of the way now. He's kind of cast her off. And now Tamar has no support. She would have no future, no hope. She's, she's forgotten. Some of you've been there. You've been the forgotten, maybe. But Jesus is building a different kind of family. His family includes those who've been forgotten like Tamar. Now, Tamar's not innocent. You're about to see this in a moment. She makes some pretty sinful choices herself as do all the people in this list of names we read here in Matthew chapter 1. So meanwhile, Judah, his wife, dies. And after a time of mourning and grief, he and a business partner, they're going to go on a business trip. And lo and behold, they're going to go to the same town where Tamar's living. Some of Tamar's friends hear about it, and they said, hey, we heard that your old father-in-law is coming to town. So Tamar has an idea. I'm, I'm going to get a family yet out of this family line. And so she disguised herself. She dressed like a prostitute. She goes out to the street where she knew her father-in-law would be passing by. It says a lot about the kind of character of this man, that he would be that predictable, right? And so she goes out. She catches his eye. He comes over to her, and, and he says, well, what's it going to cost? And, and she says, well, how about a goat? And he said, well, when I get back home, I'll, I'll send a goat to you. And she said, well, i got to have a down payment now. And he said, well, how about my ring and my belt and my staff. And she said, fair enough, I'll take it. So that happens. Eventually he goes back home. He takes the goat to the UPS store to ship it to Tamar. He doesn't know who she is, right? But So he just addresses it to the harlot, whatever, in that town. And the UPS guy gets there, and everybody in the town is like, we don't have anybody like that here. They can't find anybody by that description. So the word gets back to Judah, there's nobody like that. 
So Judah just says, all right, I'm going to let that go. I mean, let's just move on. Don't want to draw a lot of attention to that, obviously, right? So I lost a ring. I lost a belt, lost a staff, but I can live with that. I can move on. About three months later, somebody comes to Judah and says, hey, listen, your daughter-in-law, she's gone wild. She's been out there on the street acting like that, and now she's pregnant. And Judah hits the roof, and he says, we're going to go back to that town. We're going to bring her out, and we're going to burn her alive, which means also the Babies in her womb would be burned alive. So they start to drag Tamar out, and Tamar says, Hey, Judah, listen, before you light the match, you just probably want to know who the dad is. It's the guy who owns this ring and this belt and this staff. And it was like one of those Jerry Springer moments, right? The crowd was, Ooh! <laughs> Judah's busted, right? And he recognizes that. There's nothing he can do about that. And it turns out she not only has one baby, but two babies in her stomach. And one of those babies would be named Perez. And we just read his name in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, a few minutes ago. Tamar, the one who had been set aside, the one who had been forgotten. God didn't forget her. God builds his family to and through the forgotten of this world. And listen, he comes not only for the victims, but he comes for the victimizers too. Nobody's too guilty to be a part of his family. Nobody's too broken to be a part of his family. See, the family that Jesus is building is different. It's different. He comes through and to the forgotten. Secondly, he comes to and through the shameful. The shameful. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, that part of the genealogy said, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Well, we find the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Moses, as you know, brought the people of God out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies. His student, his protege, Joshua takes over. Joshua brings them across the Jordan River. And the first big fortified city they get to that has to be conquered is a city called Jericho. Some of y'all are going to have lunch with me in Jericho a few months from now. It's a real place. This really goes down. And Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho and they found this um, harlot by the name of Rahab. And so they go into her home because that wouldn't look fishy, men going into a harlot's home. And they go in there. She sees, I think she saw the Lord in these men. Something begins to happen. And so she kind of changes teams. She hides them. She helps them. And God uses her as an integral part of the victory that he gave his people there at Jericho. And while Jericho was destroyed, Rahab the harlot was rescued. She was saved. She was brought into the family of God, into the people of God. In fact, she marries one of them by the name of Salmon. And she becomes the great grandmother to Jesus times 30. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus has come to do something different. He's building a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of family. And maybe you, like Rahab, maybe once you were known for something shameful. Maybe it was a moment, a choice, or maybe it was a million shameful choices. And that left you with this label of shame in this world. But I'm telling you, God is doing something different now. He comes to people who are forgotten. He comes to the people who are ashamed. He's bringing the forgotten and the shameful into his family. You say, Pastor, but my sin is so big. 
I don't know how big your sin is, but I know his grace is bigger. I know that. His grace is greater than all of our sin. The family Jesus is building is different. He comes to and through the forgotten. He comes to and through the shameful. Number three, he comes to and through the outsider. The people with the red glowing nose or whatever it is that makes somebody an outsider. He comes for those. Verse 5 of Matthew 1 says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. We just talked about her. And then Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Ruth was an outsider. Let me tell you a little bit about Ruth. If you don't know much about Ruth, you need to read her story. It's in the Bible. It's a book called Ruth. Beautiful story. Fascinating story. I wish I had time to just read it to you today, but you'd check out. My voice would probably too. So I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. In Israel, there's a famine. Husband and wife got two boys. Got to figure out how to survive it. They got to get out of Israel. The next best place they can go to was the last place they wanted to be, Moab. The Moabites were deeply entrenched enemies to God's people. But they settle down in Moab. Those boys grow up. They get old enough to marry. They fall in love with a couple of Moabite women. So they marry those Moabite women. They're just kind of making a life there. But then one day, the father and the two boys, they all pass away. Not exactly sure exactly what happened, but what we know is now there's three ladies who are now widowed who are left behind. And one day, Naomi, the matriarch of the family, she says to the two Moabite girls, listen, honeys, I got to go back home, and there's no life for you there. You're Moabites. You just stay here in Moab. You're young. You're pretty. You'll find some Moabite guy, and you'll live happily ever after. And one girl said, cool, see you later. But the other girl, her name was Ruth, and she said, no, I'm going with you. She said, wherever you go is where I'm going. And wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. And your people will be my people. And so Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Israel and they land in a little place called Bethlehem. And it just happened to be the time of the barley harvest, which meant this was a time of opportunity, right? If you need a little side hustle, you're getting out in the field and work. And man, these ladies needed some provision. And so Ruth asked her mother-in-law, hey, can I, can I go out in the field and try to get some work, get some food, get some money. And she says, yeah. So she goes out in a field. She starts working. Kind of dangerous for a single lady to be out there among all these harvesters, you know. But the guy that owned that field, he noticed her, you know. And, and he showed her kindness and compassion. He started to protect her and to go a little extra for her. She goes home and starts telling Naomi about this guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes, shut your mouth. He's one of our family's kinsmen redeemers. Remember the story of the kinsman redeemer who didn't want to do his job with Tamar, right? And God said, boom, you're gone, you're dead. Naomi says to Ruth, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. He could help us. He could step into the void. He could rescue us. So she says, listen, honey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you all gussied up. Does anybody say that anymore? Is that still a thing? Do girls gussy up anymore? That's what's wrong with the world, ladies. Y'all stop gussying up. All right? Get back to gussying up. She said, we're going to get you all gussied up, you know? You're going to smell good and look good, and you're going to go out tomorrow, and you're going to talk to Boaz. So she does that, right? So she's looking like a million bucks, and she goes to have a conversation with Boaz, and she said, hey, listen, my mother-in-law said that you're one of the kinsmen redeemers in our family, and I'm wondering, 
hey, big boy, how about me and you, you know? And Boaz, I think Boaz was already a little sweet on her because he probably does something like this. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to have to pray about it. Amen. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> but he said, but there's one problem. There's a kinsman redeemer that's closer, and he has first rights. So tomorrow I'll go talk to him and tell him he has this opportunity. And if he says no, then I'll be your man. So the next day, sure enough, that's what Boaz does. He goes and he finds that man. He meets with him and he says, hey, listen, you've got some family members. They're deceased and now there's this land, this property, and you have first rights to it. Do you want it? And the guy said, yeah, I want it. And Boaz said, okay, cool. Well, just it, it does come with something. It, it comes with a widowed Moabite girl and her mother-in-law. And the guy goes, nope, I'm out. <laughs> He's like, hard pass. So Boaz steps in, and he marries Ruth. And they had a little boy one day named Obed. And Obed grew up, met a girl. They settled down, and they had some kids. And one little boy they had, his name was Jesse. Later, Jesse met a wife. They settled down. They had some kids, and one of those was named David. And they all lived in a little town called Bethlehem. And 28 generations after David, another son was born in that very same town. And his name is Jesus. And he came through a different family. But he came to build a different kind of family. He came to build a family of people like us. The forgotten. The shameful the outsiders. He came for people like me and you. He's building a family like that. Look, let's be honest, right? There, there's been times that we've all been forgotten. There's been times we were the last ones picked. We were looked over. There's been times that we were the ones that were carrying the shame on our lives. There's been times that we were the ones who were on the outside looking in. I want to tell you this morning, the world may forget you, but Jesus never will. You'll never be able to count the number of thoughts that he has about you. The world may be ashamed of you, but Jesus is not. He died in shame so you wouldn't have to. And the world may want to keep you on the outside and not let you in, but not Jesus. His welcome is big for you. You say, how big? He stretched out his arms and he died. And he said, you are welcome here in my family. You the forgotten, you the shameful, you the outsider. You have a place here. You have a family here in my kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom are different from anything in this world. That's what Matthew wants us to see across these 28 chapters. Lord willing, this is where I'm going to hunker down for a while. And I'm just asking you this morning, are you ready for different? Are you ready for different? God, make us ready for different and then make us different. God, change us. We're walking around under a variety of kinds of weights and Burdens of being forgotten 
and ashamed, outside, rejected. We've been hurt. We've hurt others. We've been sinned against and we've sinned against others. We're just a mess here, God. Just like all those people you came through. Gosh, they were messy. If they're not in the Bible for any other reason, it's to help us feel less messy. But you came through them and to them, and you're coming to us. And God, I thank you for that. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I am so beyond ready for different. I need Jesus to step into my life. I want to give my life to him because I've made it a mess and I need him to make it different. Then would you just trust him today? If you're not sure where to start or how to do that, I'm not the best preacher in the world, but I'm probably one of the most accessible ones in the world and I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to help you. And if you're here today as a child of God, maybe there's other things in your life you just say it's got to be different. I've not let go of some things. I've not surrendered some things. But today, Lord, I want to be different. I want you to make me different. Make my life different. Make my family different. Make our environment different, God. Just step in and invade it in the power of your presence, Lord. And maybe you're here today. And God is doing something different in your life. Man, just over the last days or weeks maybe, God has been doing a work and your life's different. Maybe your family's different. Somebody you love, you've seen God change them, they're different. And maybe today you just can't wait to say thank you, Jesus, for making a difference in my life, in the lives of people I love. I think sometimes we take that for granted. God has done so much. When's the last time we honestly, from our hearts, said thank you, Jesus for making such a difference so I want to invite you to stand and let's give him everything all of our sin all of our failures all of our forgetfulness all of our shame all of our outsiderness all of our sin let's give it all to him and let's praise him he's the difference maker